uh, chapter 34, starting in verse 29 through the end of the chapter. So let me ask again, if you're able, would you please join me in standing as we read God's holy and inerrant word together? This is Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and he told the people of Israel what he had, was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have given us your word. Stored in the scriptures for us, uh, protected through these years, sustained for us in order to be a light for our path, a lamp for our feet, to guide us into the way of salvation, to reveal to us the gracious and loving character of our Heavenly Father, to open our eyes and reveal sin to us, to bring conviction to our hearts, and to lead us then to the cross of Christ, to gaze upon Him by faith, to see His body broken, His blood shed as the punishment for our sins that we might receive forgiveness. So, Father, we ask that you would use your word for your purposes in the hearts of your people this day. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we might see wonderful things in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, before we get into this story at the end of Exodus, I want to remind you of a story in Luke chapter 24. The story of two men, this is, this is Resurrection Sunday, Jesus has been raised from the dead, we've read the account, and the very next story tells us about two men who are walking, they have left Jerusalem, they're walking to Emmaus, and as they walk, they're talking with one another about the events that have happened in Jerusalem over those last few days. And Jesus is on that road, and, and you remember the story, he does this thing where he just kind of joins them and is talking with them, but he does not allow them at first to recognize who he is. So he just joins them and kind of casually gets in on this conversation of, of what has gone on in Jerusalem over those last few days, and, and he asks what they're talking about. What is this? And they say, are you, are you literally the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what has happened? And he begins to teach them. Even though they don't yet recognize who he is, he begins to teach them. And it says, he began with Moses and all of the prophets. And he began explaining to them everything about the Messiah. And so he's teaching them from the Old Testament all about himself. What the Messiah must do, how he must suffer, and, and then enter into his glory. And it says, it's, it's verse 27 of Luke 24. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we have this great picture here of Jesus teaching about 
himself about the work of the Messiah. And when he does so, he begins with Moses. what he would do, and specifically with respect to his death and his resurrection, <clears throat> the events of those last few days. Which, which tells us that if we read the Old Testament and it doesn't point us to the work of Christ, if it doesn't lead us to understand more about Jesus, who he is and what he has done, then, then we're not reading it the way Jesus read it. That means we're missing a large part of the point. And so as we read through Exodus. The purpose is not simply to be a history lesson for us or to, to feed us new information that perhaps we'd forgotten or didn't know. The purpose of Exodus is to teach us about Christ. This passage in particular is good for that. This is a, a passage, uh, perhaps you know this story about Moses' shining face after he's talked with the Lord in the veil that he wears. Paul will use this story to talk about Christ in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. Uh, in a few moments, we're going to go there and read those verses. But I want us to see sort of the purpose, and, the, and I see two purposes. First, the purpose of this passage is to show us the glory of the covenant that God has made with Israel by showing us the glory of God, the glory of his mediator, that is Moses. But when Paul reads this passage, he says, yes, that covenant that God made with Israel through Moses did have glory, but compared to the covenant that God has made with us through the Lord Jesus Christ, that first covenant doesn't hold a candle to it at all. He says, how much more glory then is there for us seeing Christ than the Israelites seeing Moses? So we see the glory of the Old Testament and then the far surpassing glory of Christ in the New Testament. But what we see first is that God is glorifying his mediator in a certain way in this passage, isn't he? Now, Here's what we said. We said this, this little story, this scene, this vignette is the end of the golden calf episode. If we go back to the beginning, do you remember how this whole episode started? Look at chapter 32, verse 1. Uh, when, the people of, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. This whole thing started because the people in chapter 32 said, we don't know what's become of Moses, this, this man who, who led us out of Egypt. We don't know. And, I mean, that's pretty silly. They know exactly where Moses is, right? He, he's on Mount Sinai. Remember the mountain with all the thunder and the lightnings and the... The, the things that made them so fearful that they couldn't even get near to the mountain. And they, then Moses and Moses alone went up onto the mountain to be in the presence of God. They know exactly where he is. He is in the presence of God. He's receiving the word of God for them. He's acting as their mediator. Right? And as their mediator, Moses, in a certain sense, in sort of a human sense, Moses has been their redeemer. Right? He was the one, they even said it, he's the one who led them out of Egypt. He is the one who is the leader of the people who received the call from God at the burning bush to be the one to lead them out. So he's been their redeemer. He's the one who confronted the enemy. He went before Pharaoh. He told them the word of the Lord. Moses has been the one who prayed to the Lord for the people when they were hungry and when they were thirsty. And the Lord heard his prayer and he provided fresh food and fresh water for them even in the midst of the wilderness. 
He spoke to God on behalf of the people. He's spoken to the people on behalf of God. So he's been both prophet and priest for the people. He's also been the lawgiver. He's the one who receives the law on the mountain from God, and he comes down and he gives that law to the people. In all of these ways, Moses has been a foreshadowing of Christ. Right? It's, it's all subsumed under this one title of mediator, that Moses is the mediator for the people in this covenant. And the New Testament tells us, of course, there is truly only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. So here's Moses, and as he is sort of this small M mediator, that's his role. He is a foreshadowing of Christ and the work of Christ, because Jesus is our only true prophet, our only true priest, the only lawgiver in all of Zion. He is our redeemer and our only redeemer. He is the one who speaks to God on our behalf and who speaks to us on God's behalf. And so we have all this in mind and, and we read this verse, chapter 32, verse 1, and it becomes very problematic, doesn't it, when it says that they've lost their interest in Moses. As for this man Moses, we don't know what's become of him. Make us, make us other gods. What they're doing is they're seeking out other mediators. They look to this golden calf to be the mediator between them and God. And so here, at this very moment, right, this should be the very moment when they are praising God, worshiping God, thanking God. Their own mediator is on the mountain receiving the word of the Lord. This should be a moment of high praise for them, and they are losing interest in their mediator. And when they lose interest, we see this connection, right? They lose interest in their mediator, they immediately go astray. They immediately go astray and and can't, don't we see some sort of connection to our own lives in this? That, that we know that feeling perhaps all too well. That the times that we find ourselves most susceptible to temptation, most tempted by sins, most likely to wander, isn't it those times when we ourselves have lost interest in our mediator? And we don't know how we do that, right? We, our hearts should know better than this, but it happens. Right? It, it, it does, you know, we can't give a good reason. There's no excuse for this, but it happens. Somehow, we simply lose interest. Our hearts are going a different way. We lose interest in Christ, and those are the times when we are tempted and we are susceptible to sin. Because as long as we're eagerly searching out our mediator, that is Christ, as long as we're eagerly waiting for his word to us, we're seeking instruction from him, we have our eyes focused on him, that keeps us sort of on his path. We're not susceptible to fall into temptation. We don't go after other mediators, but what happens is it's those times when our, we're prone to wander. Right? We feel like our faith gets weak. We feel like he's absent. Right? We, we have that same feeling as, as for this Jesus. We don't know what's become of him. Right? We don't feel the weight of his presence because we ourselves have allowed our hearts sort of to, to go down some side trails. We don't know what's become of him. And that's a dangerous place for us. We see it's a dangerous place for the Israelites. That's step one towards the golden calf. And I think that is why the last scene in this episode of the golden calf is what? It's, here's God and, and he is glorifying their mediator in front of the eyes of the people. Right? If the descent into sin was marked by sort of neglecting the mediator, forgetting the mediator, then here's the final solution is God is saying, I am going to, to glorify the mediator before your very eyes so that 
When you look at him, you'll see the glory of God reflected in him. And it will draw your hearts towards him, towards the mediator, towards the word of the Lord that he mediates to them. God is vindicating Moses, but he's doing so for, on behalf of the people. Right? He's not doing it for Moses. It's not like Moses is, is meant to get some spiritual high out of this experience. He's doing it for the people. Right? God, is, God is causing this to happen on purpose. Because Moses has gone in the presence of God before and he hasn't had this happen. Right? He hasn't always come out every time and his face has been shining. God is doing this on purpose. Very intentionally causing this, this supernatural radiance to occur to, to vindicate Moses and to send a message to the people. Moses is the mediator, and they are to follow the mediator. This is like the last step. We've seen this sort of step-by-step progression of the reconciliation and the restoration that God is giving to the people. So he's forgiven their sin, right? His first words after the golden calf were these words of judgment, saying he's not going to go with them. But Moses interceded. He prayed for the people, and the Lord relented. He said, yes, of course, I will go with you. And he revealed himself, saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He renewed the covenant that he had made with his people. He gave them his law for their own good, for their own instruction. Here's the final step is to say, now let me vindicate the mediator for the sake of the people. And he gives them this shining face. This shining face so that when Moses comes down the mountain, his face is glowing, and it's glowing with the glory of God. Right? It's a reflected radiance. The radiance of this shining, this bright brilliance of Moses' face, it's reflected. It's not Moses' own glory that causes it to shine. It's the glory of being in the presence of God. And it's glowing to such an extent that the people are afraid. And that's kind of what we would expect because the previous times that they have been in the presence of God, they have been afraid, right? When God came to them at first on the mountain and there was this thunder and lightning, the people were afraid. And now they see that same glory, the very same glory in the face of Moses, and they have the same reaction. They're afraid. They refuse to come near. Isn't it, Isn't it interesting? There's simply something about the glory of God that causes us, on the one hand, it's it's attractive, it draws us near, it's his his glory, it's something desirable. And yet at the very same time, it's so overwhelming that to encounter it as, as simply a regular old sinful human to come into that glory is overwhelming in a fearful sort of way. And so... Throughout the scriptures, what God always does is he always veils the glory so that we can stand in his presence. He always veils the glory. It's somewhat hidden to some extent. It can be hidden in a cloud, such as has this pillar of cloud that has led them through the wilderness. That's the veiling of his glory. It can be veiled behind a veil in the temple, right? He dwells in the Holy of Holies. The people don't go in there. There's a thick veil in front of it or the veil that's on Moses' face. Right? The people are terrified, so Moses uses a veil simply to hide it. It can be veiled in a vision or a dream, or ultimately it can be veiled in the person of Jesus. Right? When Jesus comes to earth and condescends in his incarnation, 
That is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity from all eternity, and yet he comes in the form of a, a human. Right? The Christmas carol we sing, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. That's the glory of God being veiled, being partially hidden by being in a human body. Now, here's the thing. This shining face is, is a gift to the people. It's a gift to the people that they might see the glory of God reflected in the role of the mediator. It's interesting to me that we know this was not something for Moses because Moses comes down, and do you see what it says in verse 29, the end of the verse, second half? Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Moses doesn't know. Here, Moses has spent 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of God on Mount Sinai, and now he's coming down, and his face is brilliantly shining. He's totally unaware. It's as though he comes away from this encounter, and he's so completely unselfconscious that, that he doesn't know. He's not aware. He needs someone to tell him, by the way, your face has become incandescent. It's glowing. You'd think that would be something you would know. But he doesn't know it, and I think that's actually very interesting. First, because it shows us the reality that when you spend time in the presence of God, it changes you. It changes you to be in the presence of God. No one can spend 40 days in the direct presence of God and not come away unchanged. Now, your face might not literally glow like Moses' does here, but there's some kind of change. That's part of the way you know, in fact, if you've truly been in the presence of God, is, is you're, you can't come away unchanged. Simply to be in his glory and his holiness. To immerse yourself in his grace. In his kindness towards you. You can't come away from an experience like that without being changed by that. But, at the very same time, when you've truly been in the presence of God, you don't come away thinking about yourself. That is such a great reality to me that when you've truly been in the, the overwhelming, all-consuming presence of a holy God and a gracious God, a loving and kind, slow-to-anger God, when you've been in his presence, here, it's so, so consuming, it's so absorbing that you come away and it's as though your, your entire being is simply lost in the greatness of that experience, lost in worship, lost in praise, in wonder, that the last thing on your mind is you. The last thing on your mind is whether you were worshiping well enough. You're not sort of evaluating the, the extent of your experience. You're simply lost in adoration. That your face can be shining and you don't even know. That you need people to tell you, you seem really different today. What is that? I can't help but think that we live in such a self-conscious world. Right? We're always thinking about how we look. We're always concerned with our appearances. We're talking about the optics of a given situation and how things look to this perspective or to that perspective and whether we've played it correctly. Right? We're, we're wondering if this is going to make a good Instagram post. Does it look good enough? I mean, it was fun, but did it look good? Right? We're always thinking about how things look. I think it might be my favorite part of this passage to, to read that Moses... He simply doesn't know. He's been so consumed with the glory of God that his appearance is the last thing on his mind. His thoughts are not with how he looks. 
I think this happens to us. We experience things like this. Whenever we experience, and this is a lesser degree, but when we experience something in life or something in this world that, is, that has some degree of glory for us, right? that has enough glory that it, it consumes our experience such that we're totally and completely focused on the beauty of this thing, not on ourselves. Just an example. Um, when the Cubs won the World Series, that was a great day. And, and so, you know, it was so consuming that I, like you, no doubt, remembered just the entire sequence of what happened. Right? And, and, and all the experiences and everything that was said. It was such a great day. And I remember, I just wanted to keep reliving it. And so... I remember I said to Aubrey, I'm, I'm just going to watch SportsCenter all night. That's all I wanted to do. You know, SportsCenter is played over and over all night, and usually I'm tired of it. But that night, I was just going to relive it. I just wanted to stay absorbed in the moment. Well, now multiply that by 1,000, by 10,000. When you have the experience of being in something that is so filled with glory... That, that you're just consumed with it. That's what you want to experience. You want to stay there. And you're not thinking about yourself. You could be getting very hungry and you don't even know. Like, that, that, that's not coming to mind because you're so absorbed with it. I feel like that's where Moses is in this moment. The shining face, it's not for Moses. It's for the people. It is to deeply impress on their hearts the glory of God. The glory of God that here... They see it, not directly, but they see it even as it's simply reflected in the face of someone who has been in his presence, the mediator who mediates the covenant. And God is sending them this message. He's saying to them, don't neglect me. Don't neglect me by forgetting the glory and by neglecting Moses, right, the mediator of the covenant. That had been the whole problem for them, that their hearts had been prone to wander, and so he's going to He's going to draw them in simply with a greater display of the glory of God to, to remind their hearts who he is. A visible display that they would stand in awe, that they would remember that God is with them. This is meant to be, I think, a great encouragement to them. Even though it frightens them, it's an encouragement to know who their God is and who Moses, the mediator, is. Now, Take your Bibles and let's, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians because I want us to see. Paul refers to this story very clearly. 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at chapter 3 and a little bit of chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 3, 7. He says, Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of the glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what if for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Now, here's what Paul's doing. He's talking about his role as a minister of the new covenant in Christ. 
And he begins talking about the glory of this new covenant and how it far surpasses the glory of this old covenant that God made through Moses at Sinai. And he calls it the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation when he's talking about the covenant with Moses because he's showing the difference, right? That was the law, and the law does not give life. As good as that was for Israel, it doesn't give life. Life is only found in Christ. But still, he says, it had glory. He says, that had such glory that the Israelites could not look at it. That covenant that God made with Israel through Moses had glory because God had redeemed his people from Egypt. He'd taken them as his own. He'd made a covenant. He'd given them law. He'd provided this mediator for them. He glorified him. There was glory in that. There was glory in that. But it was a fading glory. It was an imperfect, lesser kind of glory. And, and Paul is making these distinctions now because he's pointing the people to Christ. And he's saying, just imagine all the glory that that covenant with Moses had, so much that the people were afraid, they couldn't look at him. The glory of Moses' face radiating this brilliance of God's glory before them. When he's saying, think on that and then realize that compared to the covenant in Christ, that is no glory at all. That is no glory at all because that old covenant was primarily about the law and the new covenant with Christ is about the gospel and the finished work of Christ. It says the old covenant was written on these tablets of stone, but the gospel is written on our hearts. The old covenant was a temporary administration, but the gospel is eternal. The old covenant was mediated by Moses, and the gospel is mediated to us by Christ. In fact, if you have your Bible open, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying there? He's just pointed us back to Exodus 34 and he's reminding us, the Israelites, they saw the glory of God in the face of Moses. And they had to look away. But we see the same glory of God now in the face of Christ. We don't have to look back to Moses to see the glory of God. We look at the face of Christ. He's making this connection for us to see. I think just to the same extent that we can picture the Israelites all standing there at the base of Mount Sinai. right? And, and they're seeing this reflected glory of God as Moses comes down the mountain. And they're simply, I think if I was there, I'd just be pondering the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the slow to angerness and the loving kindness of God. Because they still have deeply on their minds and on their conscience this golden calf episode. They know what they've done. They know what they deserve. They know the judgment that should have been theirs. And yet, instead of that judgment, they have the mediator whose face is brilliant coming down to give them a word from the Lord. They're receiving grace upon grace in the midst of this. Because the Lord has shown himself gracious. He's given them his name is gracious. And so they're, they're there simply pondering this great privilege of being God's people. Trusting his promises, being his, his own children. And, and how now they are being changed by being in the very presence of God. And I think we can picture ourselves as well, not standing at the base of the mountain, but standing at the foot of the cross. 
and when we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, coming to us not with radiant face but at the cross, put to death for our transgressions, how can we help but think first of our own sin and also of God's grace towards his people? And how can we not ponder the the glory of God and his goodness towards us and his patience with us and his love in accepting us and forgiving all of our sin. And think about the wonderful privileges that are ours as the people of God. That we look and we see all the glory of God not in Moses as a reflection, but now we see it in Christ and it's intrinsic glory because he is God. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And our mediator for us is no longer Moses, but Christ. Our mediator is not a man who went up the mountain to meet with God. Our mediator is God who came down from heaven to meet with us. Our mediator is not one who, who himself needed a mediator like Moses who couldn't stand in the presence of God, but, but our mediator is Jesus himself. And the glory for us is wrapped up in this, that it's all of Christ. It's all Christ. And this leads to two things for us. Two things, when we see the glory of God in the face of Christ, two things. The first thing is, this is where transformation happens. This is where transformation happens. 2 Corinthians 3.18, the last verse of chapter 3, says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. He says, we with unveiled faces, see, we behold the glory of God in Christ with unveiled faces are being transformed into that same image. Remember, we, we said that earlier with Moses that you can't, if you're in the presence of God, if you're truly in his presence, you can't help but be changed. You can't help but be changed. That's exactly what Paul says here. He says, as we behold his glory, we are transformed into his image. That's, that's the very process. Just as Moses was transformed in a very literal way, so that his face, his face reflected the glory, there's something similar there, right? When we are in his presence, we are transformed so that our lives reflect his glory. That we reflect the glory of, of God. And this is, I believe, God's strategy. Right, for his children. This is how he changes us. He changes us simply by inviting us to be in his presence. By welcoming us. To behold his glory. To sit at his feet. To ponder his mercies. To know his forgiveness. And when we see our lives in the context of God and his merciful glory towards his people, that is what changes a person's heart. Right? Our hearts don't ultimately changed by, by various tips and tricks and strategies for growth, our hearts will be changed when we are in the presence of an all-surpassing, glorious God. We are overwhelmed by the wonder of his beauty and his glory. That's what changes hearts. That's what makes the world and, and sin and the lust of the eyes become less attractive to our hearts. That's what will make the things of God the things of Christ and the things of the Spirit seem more beautiful, more attractive, more wonderful to the eyes of our hearts. That transformation happens when we are in the presence of God and so he invites us. He invites us to come, to, to be in his presence, to know his goodness. So 
transformation. And the second thing that happens is encouragement. And it's transformation of our lives and it's, it's encouragement and nurturing of our hearts. I can't help but think of this verse and it's, it's 4.6 which we read. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's calling us there just to stop and think about who it is now whose glory we are seeing. It is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. The creator of everything, seen and unseen in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, He's saying the very God who in the beginning spoke this world into existence out of pure nothingness. The one who spoke his word and it was accomplished. Let light shine out of darkness. That very one, that very God has now called you to himself. That very God has now given his son for you. That very God has now led you to where you are, encouraged you, given his word to you. The shining face, just as that shining face was not an encouragement to, to Moses, it was for the people. The glory of God is, is an encouragement and a message to us. The glory of God in the face of Christ. Saying simply, listen, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us in the person of Christ, who willingly and humbly went to the cross for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins, if God is for us, who can be against us? The end of that story of, of Jesus walking with the two men on the road to Emmaus is that he wasn't known to them while they were walking together, even while he was teaching. Even in his teaching, he was not known to them until they stopped for dinner. And it says, in the breaking of bread, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized who they were with. That's when they truly beheld him. It was in the breaking of the bread. Sort of a, a sacramental moment for them. And that's what we're going to do here in just a moment is we're going to break the bread, take the cup together, observe this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, this means of grace that God has given to represent to our eyes the glory of God in the face of Christ. Our wonderful Savior, our Mediator, our Redeemer, our Lawgiver. And we don't just eat and drink not in a physical sense, but we feast on Christ. See this not as, as simply a, a, a ritual, but this is a moment for us to come into the presence of God through our mediator, Jesus Christ. This is where our, by faith our, the eyes of our hearts are meant to behold our Savior, to see his body broken for us at the cross, to see his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, and to behold in that the wonderful amazing grace of God who though he knew all the depth of our sin he is merciful and gracious he's slow to anger with us he forgives our sins and he welcomes us around his table he takes us as his sons and daughters that is where we're going with this if God is for us who can be against us let's pray Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are a good and loving God. We give you thanks and praise for our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would now take your word and press it on our hearts. Encourage us, teach us, build us up. And Lord, by faith, may the eyes of our hearts truly behold your glory in the face of Christ. May we not look away, may we not wander, but may we be drawn to him. And Lord, as that happens, would you continue to to nurture our hearts, to build us up, to encourage us, to renew our faith. All for your glory through Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.